I was just wondering with me, Tom Salmon, the show that dives into music, film and games and everything else in between. And my guest on this week's show is the international writer and director, Lydia Rue. I've said that wrong, haven't I? <laughs> it's okay. It's, it's Rui. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, for people who aren't familiar uh, with your work as a filmmaker, who are you and what do you do? Um, who am I? I am an Australian Chinese writer and director um, by the name of Lydia Rui. As you said, uh, I think I started off with documentary and then I moved into fiction. Um, but I would like to say that my work kind of sits um, in between. Mm-hmm. I, I try to make cinematic work that still feels quite grounded and intimate. And the themes that I'm drawn towards tend to be the same. They tend to usually focus on identity, um, alienation versus belonging or the pursuit of belonging. Um, and the breaking of intergenerational trauma. Right, right. So, um, so today I've got uh, four topics for us to sort of talk about, um, and this is a very this is a bit of a different uh, episode. So the first topic is about inspirational mothers. Um, I just like to start. Um, actually dedicating this show to my mother, um, Elizabeth uh, Salmon, who sadly passed away actually last month. And she's the person who got me started on my uh, creative journey and was my biggest supporter. So how uh, was your relationship with your mother and how has she influenced your creative journey so far? Well, thank you so much for that dedication. And um, I'm, I'm truly, deeply sorry for your loss. And I would actually love to hear more about you talking about how you, your relationship with your mother. Yeah, almost. yeah. Well, we can definitely, uh, we can go back and forth. Um, yeah. Um, well, in terms of for me, I think I have to, I have to thank my mother in terms of, um, you know, she came, she came from, um, a very hard background, came Mm -hmm. from nothing. And, uh, you know, she, when she did get to the UK on a scholarship, she was only, she only had 80 pounds a month, um, to live on. And so her career choices were informed by necessity. Yeah. Um, and because of her hard work. Uh, I was able to have the opportunities that I did um, yeah. to pursue art, even though she, you know, she, um, for example, when she first came to the UK, used to write poetry, but right. she chose to pursue computer science in the 80s because she knew oh, that wow. that was um, yeah. a burgeoning field yeah. and that she had to, she she saw that there was new terrain to be explored by going there and that mm. she would be able to provide for her family, like her parents and yeah. her sisters, as well as um, her own family, right. our family yeah. later on. So I think she she's greatly influenced me um, or helped me by being who she is, right. <laughs> providing that background. So whereabouts does your like mother come from? And what was the sort of journey that she kind of like made, just to sort of fill in that blank like a little bit in terms of where... Because you said that she came to the to the UK to sort yeah. of study. So you've kind of done a sort of a similar sort of like journey, which we'll get into a little bit later. But I'm just sort of like curious. Well, I think <laughs> my trajectory is just um, one inch compared to hers. You know, I think 
she so she was 16 when she yeah. came here as mm. one of 10 out of um uh the whole of china that was given a scholarship oh wow uh, okay. grant to come yeah um and she was originally studying linguistics but okay. her uh you know our family um really didn't have anything she was born in chongqing in right. a in a, um a, uh, weapons manufacturing facility. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's where okay. she grew up. Really? Wow. <laughs> yeah, in a, in a factory setting, okay. basically. Um, and my grandfather um, was almost illiterate. Like, he, he, mm. he was, um, I think he finished school when he was 15, and my grandmother uh, was a primary school teacher. Okay. Well, that's interesting in terms of, like, where you grow up in the environment you grow up in, which does sort of shape your tastes. So I was just wondering... Was there a, t a particular moment as a child or teenager when you started to really appreciate your mother's taste in music, art and film? Is that something you could connect over? Unfortunately, not really. Um, well, not unfortunately, because she still inspired me and informed me in, in many other ways. Mm. You know, her entrepreneurial spirit, I think, um, inspired me. But she, uh, she and I didn't really grow up together because okay. um, of her work. Right. And so... I spent um, most of my childhood and all of my teenage years mm. basically living in another country from her. Mm -hmm. So when we did see each other, it was much more about practical, the practical side of things. Right. It wasn't. It wasn't until later on that I think, um, yeah, we kind of had deeper conversations. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so where were you living when you were living apart? Because I know was that back in was it Singapore? Yeah. So right? in, in Singapore. Yeah. yeah. In Singapore, um, from the age of thirteen to seventeen. Yeah. Um, I lived uh, without my family. Mm -hmm. um, from thirteen to sixteen, I was in a in a guardian home, and then oh, in wow. seven, sixteen to seventeen, I was living with a primary school teacher. Okay. So that's because um, I guess the thing is it's all it's not necessarily a great sort of that comparison, but it's almost being like uh, not necessarily like an orphan per se, but you are um, under the care and guidance of somebody else, and you don't necessarily have that familial sort of that contact uh, with a parent. Um, and again, this is something we'll touch on again. This idea of like um, otherness, like not belonging, maybe being not. Um, uh, should we say like part of your sort of like surroundings and feeling like you're enmeshed as you would sort of stuff you wouldn't even think about as being a child that sort of grows up with your parents and that, that kind of thing. Um, so I guess, I guess it's like next question. Uh, um, uh, I guess it's interesting, I guess, like, cause we've talked about whether you connect over things. So I guess I can contrast to that. Um, did you have a rebellious phase as a teenager or a young adult? Um, and I guess were you exploring more provocative artists and filmmakers that perhaps not your mother or the people that were looking after you didn't, didn't approve of perhaps? Um, it was funny because I think my whole teenage years and even just before I was mm. in a, my, they were all rebellious. <laughs> I think okay. I got yeah. my first, like I got my first tattoo when I was like 13 Wow. Okay. and I started, um, I, I feel like I, yeah, I had my rebellious phase quite young, <laughs> right, right, right. but I did, um, you know, who has really influenced me when, um, when I was like in that, in that period, I would return back to Australia for the summer yeah. um, often. And during that time, you know, my mum would still be working and we lived in a suburb that was quite um, quite far away from the city. So it would take like an hour and a half to get into the city. So I ended up usually just staying home. Yeah. Um, and I would go to local blockbusters and rent out films. And okay. um, one of the films that I rented out that really, really stayed with me and I feel like still influences me to this day is probably Perfect Blue by Satoshi Kon, which is quite a yeah. <laughs> intense um, psycho thriller anime that mm, I think I remember, um, yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think that was probably quite pivotal. And I had a I had a really lovely neighbor called Chappers who mm. um, uh, was older than me, and he kind of showed me all this kind of indie, right. indie films and and musicians as well, like Joy Division and stuff. Oh, okay, right, yeah, <laughs> so, the darker, darker edge of yeah, kind of yeah. Things. But also like people dealing, I guess, like be, dealing with like personal uh, tragedy in a way that because essentially like um, but I guess something like Joy Division, yes, they're dealing with uh, mental health issues and, and personal tragedy in a melancholic kind of way, as opposed to somebody like a death metal group where it's just basically it's all iconography, it's all image, it's all I guess mm. a more venal and visceral sort of side of things. At mm. least in this, there's more of a like, personal connection to it rather than it just being just like bloods and snots, basically. I know from a previous um, conversation that you said you like uh, work that focuses on the darkness and part of it, um, your work sort of focuses on uh, trauma, but through your work, it's coming to a, a place of, I don't know, maybe a catharsis um, through that. And we actually did speak about um, Enter the Void and Melancholia as being two <laughs> things that were, I guess, like later on were things that you were interested in. Um, is there anything, uh, can you think of anything like now, um, not necessarily like a film um, per se, but anything like now that's sort of like touched in like in a similar kind of way, I wonder, recently? Um, well, in terms of uh, films, oh, um, I went, well, I went to the Francis Bacon exhibit. Oh, okay. I think that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. was actually really, um, you know, I could feel goosebumps when I went there mm. and that was really, you could see the, the texture and his darkness there and how he felt confined and, mm. um, was trying to live beyond that confinement mm. as well, but it kind of being this pervasive feeling chasing him yeah. and, you know, being able to see it even in the animals around, mm. um, that projection, I think, uh, yeah. really spoke to me. Mm. And I remember one of my favorite pictures actually is from like the Batman movie, which when I first saw it, but there's a very famous picture of the hanging meat with the guy, there's like sunglasses and the little hat and stuff and that's always sort of stuck with me it's always been one of my favorite Francis Bacon uh, pictures and also just jumping on from that I actually went to a Keith Cunningham exhibition at the Newport Street Gallery who's um, actually he's, he's actually an Australian artist who was very well regarded at a certain time and he stepped away from fame but he continued to paint but he's it's sort of Bacon-esque so mm -hmm. I'd recommend sort of checking that out um, yeah it's in Lambeth and it's owned by Damien Hurst sort of gallery so that's a good one to check out um so just like moving on, so we've spoken to each other before a couple of, about three years ago in like 2019. So I'd just like to do a little uh, recap. Um, so you graduated from NYU Tisch School of the Arts. You worked as a videographer for Beyonce and your short film, This Perfect Day, which you made in 2018, had just screened at the Tribeca Film Festival. So what happened next in your creative journey? Well, I actually made this perfect day as a little exercise mm -hmm. um, with friends. It was very, very lo-fi. Um, and I had actually made it as a submission mm -hmm. for the NFTS. So I actually... Oh, right. Okay, yeah. Yeah, actually, um, whilst I was at Tribeca, got the notification that um, I was selected for an interview. Mm -hmm. And then um, soon after, did the interview and um, uh, over Zoom, um, which... I guess went well and then I was selected and then soon after that I, I was at an FTS. Right. Um, yeah. And how did like COVID kind of affect that at all? I guess because even now like it's this weird um, this weird sort of like fog where I'm trying to track where COVID actually started and well it's still ongoing now but kind of like finished in terms of like lockdown and did, any, did that kind of like interrupt anything at all for you? Definitely. So uh, 
We began our NFTS degrees in January, mm. um, the master's students anyway. Um, we began in January, late January, and then the lockdown happened, um, was it March? And then March, yeah, April? Yeah, the thing, the first one, yeah. yeah. And, and that completely shuttered everything and nobody knew what was going to happen, how long it was going to go for. I think there were film schools in Germany, for example, that put indefinitely on hold mm -hmm. um, their programs. And we just did everything via Zoom. And I think, I, I'm sure you've had this experience too, but at that time, everybody um, thought that because we were in our homes, we could just keep going um, yeah. with Zoom. Mm -hmm. So it would be like 10 to 6 nonstop Zoom. And it, it, they, I think people hadn't quite um, grasped the extent of screen fatigue right, yet. Yeah, and like yeah, that yeah. Zoom fatigue that yeah, can happen. Of course, yeah. um, you know, it's just like the, the darting of the eyes between lots of different faces mm. and trying to register those um expressions and i think uh yeah we maybe lost out on some mm. of the interdisciplinary nature of filmmaking yeah. that we had come there for the networking and all this but by by the end of it i think the school actually did an amazing job of mm -hmm. providing providing covid funds right so um we still for the most part got to make our films um mm just with new restrictions in place but again there was there was like a covid pot that the school provided right that was okay. really helpful um and just to sort of backtrack a little bit it's only eight people that actually selected for the ma in directing for fiction um, is that correct so you for for our year yeah. i think um for the year after me and onwards it's now 10 it's oh, been okay, increased right. to 10 but uh for my year it was eight and um and then I think from that eight, is it only a few of you actually get to make like full length films or do you all get to make um, films? It's actually very democratic. I really like it because we all make films um, and we're all given the same amount of money yeah. and the same resources mm -hmm. uh, that the school offers in terms of facilities. So uh, compared, it's one of the reasons I really wanted to come here actually yeah. because other film schools, um, they might give you a little, a few grand to, to help you, but then other people with connections and mm. um other resources might be able to make you know films with helicopters and you know what i mean it's just like mm. um it, it evened out the playing field and it was really nice i think in that in that regard and i think it's sort of quite worth mentioning in terms of these sort of thesis films that are highly involved you sort of mentioned typically how much does like uh, one cost like ballpark figure just so people have like have an idea of the kind of money that people spend on these projects um so again it's the, the school funds it completely yeah. so okay. we don't we don't um pay for them but the school gave us i i don't know if i'm allowed to say it but i think i can say <laughs> uh the school gave us 18 18 000. right yeah yeah um but you know we get a lot of in-kind favors mm. as well i think um and you have to be um yeah, I think so. We have equipment, for example. The school yeah. has its own equipment mm -hmm. and really state-of-the-art facilities like yeah. color grading suites and mm. sound mixing, dubbing theaters. Um, so in a way, it's it's worth a lot more mm. than the 80s. Yeah, of course. Yeah. The school gives. Um, so before this, as you say, like you had like a, you'd done sort of filmmaking and filmmaking work. And I'm, I'm sure you could have easily uh, found a job at a production company doing film related things or even like directing, um, you know, jobs and, and stuff like this. So what was like the primary focus of like, right, I want to continue my education from doing like a bachelor's in art to like an MA rather than going like, right, I'm going to go out and I'm going to um, see how I get on, you know, in the, I guess like in the industry as, as it's as such, basically. 
To be honest, I didn't feel ready after、mm. this perfect day. I really feel like I made this perfect day as an exercise, right?、Um, as almost a, a scene, and I wanted to come to the NFTS for the freedom、mm. of exploring、um, different sides of myself and also scaling up. Yeah.、Uh, but in a kind of、um, yeah, in a maybe. A trained way. I felt like I I, need, I wanted to work on the musculature、um, of the craft of directing, right? Gradually,、mm-hmm. um, to a point where I built my own confidence. I see.、Um, so I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. What are the、mm-hmm. three biggest difference between studying filmmaking in New York, doing the bachelor's of fine arts, and in London doing like the masters of arts? Just is like a. Co- I mean, I, I, I guess what I'm sort of alluding to is that、like、the cultural differences of English style teaching versus America.、Oh. I think it's so hard to compare because at NYU I was, like you say, doing a bachelor's.、Yeah. So we were all young and didn't know what we were doing <laughs> necessarily.、Yeah. I I also came in as an internal transfer, so、yeah. I didn't start off the bat、um, doing film.、Mm. And I even whilst I was finishing film, I was still doing other、uh, general electives to、yeah. fulfill my American degree.、Um, so it was it was、uh, not as discipline specific. Um, oh, as as the masters here, I don't have to battle anyone for being a director. I'm very lucky to just be given the position of、mm. I am a director.、Um, mm. Everybody else has chosen their fields with the same ardor and the same passion that I've chosen my field,、mm-hmm. um, and we're all working together to make the best film we possibly can in our fields、mm-hmm. with the same amount of passion. You、right. know, whereas I feel like、um, at NYU in the undergrad program. Lots of people were still figuring out what what was their true niche. Right.、Um, yeah. Okay. And so, just following on from that, in the last interview that we did at the very end of it, like actually off air, we spoke about your creative vision of filmmaking style as a director. So, what's been the biggest influence inside, outside of filmmaking that you feel has really developed your directorial vision? I mean, you did talk about the musculature—I can't even say that word—musculature <laughs> of of,、um, of directing. So, what's really honed that、um, for you? Do you feel between, I guess, like this perfect day and then going to like、um, viral? I guess、uh, viral.、Oh, sorry, viral. Ah. <laughs> <laughs>、um, uh, Yeah, I think for a, a respect for like honestly, for example, with this perfect day, I wrote it and direct. I wrote it very very quickly,、mm-hmm. um, and then I also not only directed it, I also edited it, and then we only had three days to do the sound design,、um, a couple days to do the color grade, and the first assistant director, for example, that was his first job,、right. uh, being an AD. So it was very、um, intimate and.、Um, Really, just felt like an exercise、mm. for us. Whereas、um, coming to the NFTS, you learn how to work, for example, in development with tutors and script developers、mm-hmm. who come and give you feedback, and not to be too precious, but at the same time、um, retaining your integrity. Right. So, how to kind of work with people who might be in executive positions, for example. You learn to work with just so many other disciplines that I'd never worked with、mm. before.、Um, Differentiating between <laughs> a producer, a production manager, a production coordinator. Right, and, right, know, right.、Um, yeah. There's also an assistant directing course、mm. at NFTS. So, I'd never had so many assistant directors who are all really lovely. I loved them all. Yeah.、Um, and、uh, we had 
Graham Hartstone, who had mm. worked on Eyes Wide Shut and Blade Runner and all these films, um, yeah. helping us with the with the dialogue mixing, for right. example, yeah. and just having access to these okay. facilities. And um, yeah, I think uh, scaling up, okay. managing people that, you know, that I think there were like something like 74 students that ended up working on Viral. So, Viral, yeah. Um, and it wouldn't be it wouldn't be that uh, it wouldn't be that level of film I think without without them. Yeah, so. yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so just jumping into into that, so can you remember the feeling or event that initially sparked the idea for that film when you were coming up at the NFTS for that particular one? Um, yeah. So I oh also just on the yeah. last point, I, I just also wanted to say that it was so much about um, letting go a bit more and okay. also allowing other departments to rise up. You can't see what I'm doing, I'm like lifting my hands up yeah. and just like having yeah. their um, creative input um, in this way that I just, yeah, it was really, really uh, delightful for me and having okay. a development process yeah. um, that I had never had before in that way. Um, sorry, so you were saying the seed of Viral. It yeah. came from... Um, uh, a dream and also a feeling of um, of queer erasure that I saw in very binaristic films, okay. yeah. very heteronormative binaristic films. So, for example, a film like The Beguiled, I'm like, but what about the queer character in that? Okay. <laughs> you know, like, and I think my experience of feeling... Um, of, uh, of a bit of a jealousy <laughs> of like to, towards um, yeah not being uh, man enough right okay <laughs> um, and just so the audience has a little bit of idea can you just give like a short short sort of synopsis of the film just so as we continue your conversation they kind of know what we're uh, what we're going to be talking about a little bit yeah so Viral is a psychosexual thriller at sea mm following Bo, who is an androgynous deckhand on board a research vessel of otherwise all women. Mm -hmm. And they're having a clandestine affair with Dr. Rosen, who is the chief scientist, mm. um, who is on a mission to potentially solve the global fertility crisis, yes. which is plaguing the world mm. in this um, post-apocalyptic setting. Mm -hmm. And the thing that sort of like struck me um, uh, was he did a post he did an Instagram post actually and it always feels weird when I bring this up because it kind of feels like I'm stalking my guests but it's not it's like it's basic so like research but it, it was interesting because you posted about your mother and saying she's a similar you're the similar age as she was when she had you and obviously this is to do with uh, pregnancy and, and and this sort of stuff and I just wondered if you was it or maybe was it conscious unconscious these mm -hmm. sort of feelings of sort of like motherhood like exploration and and, uh, and this sort of thing that's we're feeding it to this particular point in your life or am I reaching <laughs> quite hard here to no, make a connection think, um, that's really interesting I hadn't actually thought of that but there is probably some kind of subconscious uh, pressure that I mm. feel where I'm dealing with my gender in a way um, and then also feeling the pressure to have a, a nuclear family mm. maybe yeah maybe okay. Okay. <laughs> I haven't processed that yet <laughs> um, so in terms of um, the uh, the film's development at the NFTS and its other financial partners did you have to negotiate with them to explore the film's more sexually explicit story elements as you talk about like queerness or gender dysphoria that kind of thing 
Surprisingly, they, they didn't try to censor me at all. They were mm. very supportive of the whole process. And they said they've never made a film like this in their, in their history. Oh, okay, right, but, right. Um, but they've they've or not explored gender in this way or sexuality in mm. this way. Um, but they were actually very supportive. Yeah. Um, I, had a, I had a great um, uh, script consultant who was with us called Angeli McFarlane. And I think um, her presence really helped, as well as Ian Sellers, who was my, my mm -hmm. tutor. I think they really supported me, yeah. even if perhaps other people didn't <laughs> mm, okay i see yeah. right yeah um and had you done a lot of like uh, outside research and say like sexology and like queerness and i guess like in a more formal academic sort of like setting or was it just oh, your own sort of like personal experience you kind of bring into it through your own like personal exploration because obviously there's a there's a huge history of sort of queer cinema um that you can sort of like investigate and there's other like queer like events that you can kind of go to where you can interact with this community right outside of just like reading a really thick uh, book about mm. it basically yeah um absolutely i think i it definitely came from my own feelings mm. uh foremost but then i would read some academic literature mm. some interviews um uh i've been reading undoing gender by judith butler right. um, and did go to the trans pride march but beyond that obviously i also have um, trans friends mm -hmm. and um, Liv is non-binary. Yeah. Michelle from This Perfect Day is non-binary. Mm. Um, and we also had a trans intimacy coordinator. Right, and, right, right. Um, yeah, I think it's just always, it's always, it, things came from me from a personal place, but there's always um, educating mm. to be doing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I'm very open to that always. Um, and just to sort of jump in a little bit into the casting process of Bo, played by Liv, how did that come about? Because she's, she's the pivotal character. Sorry? They. Is that they, yeah. Yeah, apologies, because I know I made that mistake before. How, how did they, how did they, uh, did you go about? Uh, casting them. Yeah. Um, I had a great casting director right. called Heather Baston. Yeah. And she actually put forth Liv, um, mm. I think she, she, she selected about 20 to 30 um, performers um, yeah. or talents and Liv just really stood out to both of us. Okay. Uh, they're, they're an amazing um, academic playwright and performer right. in their own right. They've actually got a show coming out at Edinburgh Fringe. Oh, okay, right, right, right. Yeah. And they're also directing um, their partner's show, Cats. Right, okay. Like Frankie Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> um, and obviously, like, no spoilers, but I'm interested to um, learn a bit about the challenges of shooting um, this film on a research boat in the middle of the ocean. Did you encounter, what kind of, like, in production problems did you encounter while shooting the film? Because I understand shooting, it seems quite arduous. Yeah, it was, it's a lot, because actually the, the red tape at school surrounding um, the, the health and safety element is very dense. Mm. So we had to we had to make sure that everything was as safe as possible. Yeah. Um, obviously, f financially, it was very challenging, mm -hmm. um, but we were really lucky to have met various people who um, were able to help us for a very very nominal fee. Mm -hmm. uh, we actually ended up having to shoot 
on four different boats oh, wow, to okay. make it. Yeah. We made three look like one, and mm-hmm. then there was another one that was coming. That's the man's mysterious man's boat. Mm-hmm. Um, and going out to sea, I think, was the hardest because it took about two hours to get into the middle of the Solent. Right. Um, and then we also wanted it to be magic hour, and the only time we can really do that is dawn because it was a busy time right? Yeah. Um, during the Solent. Mm. Usually a lot of people there, it's just flooded with sailboats and, you know, mm. um, leisurely activities. And so we want it to look um, isolated. Yeah. And then, so not only are we, you know, traveling out to get, that half an hour window of time, hoping that there's nobody else there. Mm-hmm. We're also trying to coordinate another boat coming towards our boat. And we're right. also getting the Alexa shot as well as getting the drone shot simultaneously. Right. Um, again, only having half an hour. And it's, it was also a night shoot as well. So everybody was really tired. Yeah. Um, but I think we got it in the end. Yeah, you did. You did. So, yeah. So it, it was, um, I think... Yeah, people tend to maybe underestimate how hard it is to get um, a shot coordinating two boats mm. coming at each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot like walkie-talkies and yeah, making yeah. sure they're coming. There's a lot uh, of miscommunication. <laughs> <laughs> Chuggy pig. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah just and uh, I guess like um, about that because you're quite a meticulous storyboarder. I know from your last film that you as we sort of spoke it had a documentary feel but it was meticulously sort of storyboarded in the case of that you said that letting go was this as meticulously storyboarded in terms of the sequences or did you have to I guess like adjust more and be a bit more I guess like flexible I don't know if that's the right word um yes we still meticulously storyboarded and we even um incorporated photos from our recce mm-hmm. uh, as storyboards so we kind of storyboarded then did a recce then took photos at the recce and then yeah. used those photos in the storyboard um but that allowed us to then be flexible mm. on then i would revisit those storyboards um and redraft them and be like oh what we can actually combine these shots into one shot, you know, right. or we can lose this shot here. And mm-hmm. um, I also would show them to Sean Pearson, our editor, and mm-hmm. be like, what do you think? Yeah. Is there something that maybe we don't need or maybe something we really do need to mm-hmm. prioritize? Um, and then that was also really helpful when we had Cordelia Hardy, um, Ariane Devaris, and Richard Lingard as our first ADs on right. days. Um, because then we could communicate uh, at shorthand and we also had quite a limited amount of time that we could shoot just mm-hmm. because the tides would rise and fall which means that we could only exit the gangplank at certain times right um the gangway and we had to just be very very there was no going over time basically right. yeah yeah be very very diligent mm. and um just about there's one particular shot that, that's in there and it's not really like a spoiler but there's one bit where Bo is stretching out and then there's like two circular um like ports and because it's to do with like female reproduction it did sort of like strike me on a very sort of anatomical like level that i could see this sort of like symmetry <laughs> and i don't know if that was like in, obviously like intended or not and i guess like you you can read films in a many different sort of like ways but it did i thought it was an interesting sort of parallel i just wondered if that was like intentional or not or i'm just again like reading too much into the that's amazing it. i uh, definitely did not i did not design the boat that way Mm. but that's very yeah that's funny that you say that no I hadn't even realized that (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, so just like, just like sort films of are like a Rorschach test. I swear, <laughs> they could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so uh, what I'm seeing in there. So I just want to sort of move on to the score and the sca- uh, sound mix, which you sort of briefly spoke about before, which is very important to the film's uh, claustrophobic, uh, claustrophobic atmosphere. So how did you technically convey the mood and tone that you wanted to achieve to the sound department? Because it sounds pretty tough in a way. Um, so I, I always create playlists. Whenever, whenever I'm writing a film and um, before we even shot, I sent that playlist to our composer, Matilda Coachlin, and she actually wrote some draft cues, mm-hmm. which were really, really helpful. Um, we always talk about texture and uh, feeling, and she sent me those draft cues, and that also helped me um, a bit with the shot listing. Right. Helped Lukash and I with the shot listing. Um and actually, likewise, with Jan Sigworth, our sound designer, he sent me these amazing recordings of um, ice breaking in the Arctic. Yeah. And that was really, that just brought a mood into my mind and an atmosphere. And it helped me realize that sound sound can increase the production value of mm, your film. Yeah, tenfold. 100%. Yeah, yeah. You know, it just creates this world in this way that you... Um, you can't visually capture. Mm. It just elevates things. Yeah. So um, I think that was that, that's kind of how we communicate. It was a dialogue. And then when it comes to the post-production and we're actually in the thick of it, yeah. I also like to kind of get my hands, um, not, not in there, but I just mean I, I like to be physically with, uh, the sound designer right. as much as possible. Yeah. Um, I really enjoy that process um, of, cause I, I, I think I can be quite uh, particular about mm. sounds. They have right. a real different effect on me. Yeah. It's like the same with, with color as well. I'm, I'm always there um, in, in the coloring process. Mm-hmm in the color grading process because I, I feel like I have like kind of a visceral reaction to right. sounds. It's really hard to describe. Yeah, no, I, I think I can understand. I guess, and I, always, I say in terms of like things you can control, I guess like sounds and the sort of color grading is something you can definitely be very precise and exact yeah. with as well. Um, but I, I do think also we're really lucky with that. Um, we just had similar taste. Right. As well. Mm-hmm. So like Jan, for example, found um, this percussive sound for the engine yeah. that is almost like a track as mm. well. And that's, I think that's just a taste thing as well. Yeah. You know, I think so we were quite aligned. So it wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would prefer always to work with people in which our tastes are aligned. You don't have to. You're not fighting them. Yeah. yeah. Or struggling to yeah. find that language. Yeah, it's yeah. like an intrinsic quality mm. almost. Yeah. Um, yeah, and also George Day did the percussion bits, some bits that Matilda then chopped it yeah. used to create that um, sound, but he was beating on, like, pipes and right, things like that. yeah, yeah. That's cool, that's cool. And definitely, like, um, with Foley uh, design, it, it can be all sorts of weird and wonderful um, objects that, uh, that they use you wouldn't even think of. Um, like, I think one of the famous ones is, like, celery is used to, like, snapping bones, I think, and all this oh, sort of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Things you kind of just wouldn't think of, but I. And the thing about sort of like sound and sound design is it's very subliminal as well. Like very like tonal shifts can just make you feel really un, uncomfortable. Yeah. But you're not you're not really actually aware that you're hearing something, um, which is quite in- interesting. Um, so I just want to just sort of sum up a little bit here. Um, so I know from watching this perfect day in Viral, um, the exploring themes of like queerness, androgyny, alienation, and the female gaze is central to your work as a writer, director. 
why are these themes still important to you in like 2022? I think they just always will be. I feel like they're kind of like the fabric or the, the DNA of my of my being. Mm. I feel like I can't really separate yeah. um, myself from my queerness or mm. the feeling of alienation that I grew up with or the pursuit of belonging. Mm. Um, I think that's going to be an engine in my work but it doesn't necessarily dictate the subject matter right i see yeah sense. yeah it does yeah so that's definitely because i guess like in terms of like exploration in terms of making this particular movie is there anything like now that you feel because you've pushed in i guess like further into this is there anything that you can kind of see like beyond that you would like to explore even further i mean i know you're developing this into sort of a feature film um but is there anything like beyond this you kind of think that's still like I guess, like, still to sort of, like, touch upon or, like, explore, I guess. Um, sorry. <laughs> you mean with Viral? Yeah, yeah well, like, we just with... see these themes because I guess, like, as you as you push out in these different, like, themes and you ex explore, and I guess, like, mm. through exploring these themes, you're getting a deeper understanding and appreciation mm. of them. I just wonder, is there stuff you can now, you're more, like, aware of now that you can see you'd, like, further, would further like to explore, I guess, is, I guess, is the question on. Hmm. I think, um... I just, I, I think I, I haven't done it justice. I think I've just, right. I've only explored them in a short form, mm -hmm. um, which limits me. And I, I think I just really want to explore it in a, in a long form, in a feature form where I can um, show nuance and depth in all the different characters yeah. rather than um, being so subjectively focused on just one character and in terms of doing having more empathy for everyone mm -hmm. in a way that comes, comes across you yeah. know, and exploring like a, like a prism, just seeing, right. seeing everybody. Yeah. Um, I just feel like I haven't been able to do that really yet. Okay. Um, and then sense. just my final question on this particular topic is like, Overall, what do you think is kind of like missing at the moment from uh, all of the things that people are like, you feel are not talking about, are not sort of like exploring enough outside of your own work in, inside this sort of, um, this sort of like arena, I guess? Hmm. I think that's... Um I think it's the intersectional quality that I'm interested in mm -hmm. that I haven't really seen explored as much okay. in a, in a, in a post national sense that I'm somebody who, for example, has grown up, um, across different countries. I don't feel like I really belong to mm -hmm. any of them. Right. Um, and to explore East Asian queerness in a way that isn't then confined within um, the nationality of that of that auteur as okay. well. Yeah. Um, and then also exploring how uh, I, I guess there are like films exploring toxic masculinity and yes. you know whatever <laughs> you um, the words are now. But I feel like that is something to be explored, how, how maybe men feel this yeah. pressure to perform a certain mm. way um, and are trapped in their own way also. Mm. And um, which is a nice sort of segue into my actual ne next topic, which is a film <laughs> beyond in a, it, it's an, it's, it gets, it's an interesting sort of segue. So um, my favourite uh, blockbuster of like 2022 so far has been like Top Gun uh, Maverick, which has grossed over a, a billion dollars at the international box office. And I just like wonder, with, I guess like with that in mind, what are your thoughts and feeling in a film like that's overwhelming 
um, success? Do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think it um, is so successful because it speaks to both sides of the coin. You know, mm. like the men that it portrays probably really um, thrive watching that mm. um, and feel like validation perhaps I don't know or some celebration but then also on the other side of the coin it's like people could go there it, it's a real it's a cinema film you know it's a community mm. event that people could partake in potentially laughing at because yeah. it's so full of, it's so it's like pastiche it's like mm. it's so self-reflexive mm. you know what mm. I mean I yeah 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 you can't tell if it's parodying itself or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it is, um, yeah. to an extent. To an extent. But yeah. then also, you know, the acrobatics of the fighter jets mm. is very um, fun and immersive. Mm. And you need a certain amount of capital to be able to, yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. do those sequences, mm. you know. And then learning about the training as well. There's a whole narrative beyond the, the two-dimensional screen. Um, but I think that's I think that's why it works. Almost like in the way that satire works, right? That yeah, it can draw in two poles. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, and also I think it's a very sort of simplistic movie. And I guess like people are hating this as sort of return to old like Hollywood in a way. But I was actually watching an interview with Barry Norman, who reviewed a, a famous film critic, I should say, who reviewed the first like Top Gun. And he was very scathing about it. He said that this is very old fashioned. It's like John Wayne would have made this film like 30 years ago, and that was in like 1986. So it's a weird, it's a weird polarity now that something that was poorly reviewed yet very successful is now being held as this uh, masterpiece. Um, a very simplistic like masterpiece but a masterpiece uh, um, no less of a sort of technical sort of storytelling I guess as you say like it's a very it's a very technical movie and I guess irrespective of the of the rather um, rote sort of storyline I guess the thing that I enjoy most about <laughs> it is the technical brilliance of a actor like Tom Cruise who's got 40 years worth of making movies he could only make that movie because only he has done the the preceding work that, that leads <laughs> up to being able to, to I know that's why people. it's just it's so ironic this whole that Uncle Tom Uncle Tom is here to, to yeah, save the yeah, day yeah, still yeah. you know all you youngsters think that you know better but Uncle Tom <laughs> and it's a weird um, it's a weird dynamic because I guess like uh, when he was shouting and screaming that famous audio clip on like Mission Impossible uh, 7 or something about being the gold standard um, uh, for Hollywood filmmaking. And I guess this film, they say, has put an extra like 300 or 400 million dollars onto the US like, box office. So I guess like the overall health of the industry, well, a part of the industry, does seem to be resting on a 60-year-old man that is not potentially in the next couple of years going to be able to shoulder that burden. And then what kind of happens to... Um, too popular, uh, well, too sort of film or very popular sort of like filmmaking. Are we then just uh, going to be um, just it's just going to be like forever sort of Marvel, like Marvel movies, and there'll, be, there'll literally be no, um, I guess, like I, I struggle to say the word, but authorship in terms of like a for better or worse, I guess there is a, a um, Tom Cruise has a uh, uh, has a personality and has a charisma that is unique to himself. He's not playing a, a sort of superhero. It's not interchangeable, I guess. Hmm. Um, I think, um, I don't know. I, I'm not actually the kind of person who is drawn necessarily to Tom Cruise films. So I feel like I'm the yeah, wrong it's audience. A, yeah, it's a bit problematic, I guess, with his like, <laughs> I think, personal life. Um, I'm not a Francophile or anything, but mm. I think they do it right where they kind of just in the afternoon go into the cinema by themselves and watch a little 
altered films. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's cultural soul nourishment. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a, I think I'm a bit strange because I, I guess I can pre appreciate deeply art, like sort of non-narrative, atonal, sort of like movie making and like Hollywood um, filmmaking. So that moving on to like another um, fun question. Um, so in our last interview, we briefly spoke about The Matrix and the possibility of a fourth Matrix film. Sadly, The Matrix Resurrections was a creative and financial failure. But let's just say... You get a phone call um, tomorrow and they say, we want you to direct The Matrix 5 in like 2027. Do you have like a little bit of an elevator pitch, I guess? Is there anything, would you make the avant-garde uh, um, uh, Matrix, I guess? <laughs> I actually feel like the first three Matrixes are so good mm. that they stand on their own as a trilogy and they should not be touched. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't, I feel like, yeah, I would just be um, letting them down if I tried to do a fifth one. But if I... I, if somebody did, I'd be like, why don't we just explore from another lens? Like, what about mm. the Oracle's experience of the Matrix yeah. or something? You know, like somebody else's right. entirely. I mean, what a burden that must be. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be the purveyor of truth and, yeah. and get people on the right path. The, the Cassandra of the Matrix. Mm. <laughs> and I just wondered, do you have any thoughts and feelings about, because obviously the, uh, the fourth one is like very, very referential and it's very meta to what came before. Do you have like, a particular feeling about uh, filmmaking that is very referential and very like meta? Is that something that, because I know that's not something that's particularly in your work, but is that something that you, uh, that you have a particular thought or feelings about? Um, I think Ruben Oslin does it quite well mm -hmm. um, in The Square and Force Majeure. Uh, I don't know if that's what you mean. Kind of, well, I mean, something in terms of like meta, in terms of it's very self-aware, uh, in terms of like, the, so in the fourth Matrix movie, for example, it's said that the, the, the uh, Keanu Reeves' character is a game designer and the first three movies were video games, basically, and it sort of cannibalizes the content. Um, then you have something like the, the latest Thor movie that's very referential. I guess mm. I'm picking very sort of... I watched um, Stranger Things recently oh, for the first another, time. Be another example, And I thought yeah. that was actually really great. Yeah, <laughs> I really yeah. loved it. Mm. I really enjoyed that, yeah. And that's an inter I guess that's an interesting thing because they're picking a point in America where it's, where it's a high point, essentially. During that particular point, it was seen... Um, I guess like culturally like it was a real cultural force mm -hmm. and like power if you then start to move forward into sort of like the 90s and like 2000s the, the it seems to sort of drop off in terms of our well I remember for me when I was young the reverence for America that I had of it being this land mm -hmm. um, and I, I guess like for me that reverence uh, particularly what's going on with that country right now is mm -hmm. slowly like melting away it's Absolutely. pulling itself apart at the seams so it's interesting they pick that particular yeah. um, point I think, I mean, definitely America at that time, though, controlled media distribution mm. in a way that other countries didn't um, mm. because the Internet hadn't come about. So yeah. um, not to the extent that it has now, you know, social media didn't exist. Mm. So I think it was able to monopolize this image of itself um, as a hero. <laughs> yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so my next sort of fun question is, um, which I'm going to book in the last question by. Um, so if Netflix called you up today and said they said they wanted you to write and direct a new eight-part psychodrama series, do you have any like any ideas, anything like you can kind of like uh, pitch? In fact, even we could go back and forth. We can, we can <laughs> spitball and, and work out something now. Um, yeah, I definitely. It's funny that you say psychological mm. dramas, though, because I definitely feel like that is a part of my work. That mm. I I enjoy. Um, I well, when I was a kid, not a kid. Sorry, when I was younger, I wrote a short about 
three identical triplets that go oh, okay. that, right. that break into a house. Yeah. Um, and then it turns out the house owner um, uh, blindfolds them and is this like mad scientist kind of person, traps them in a basement okay. and switches their brains around and does right. these experiments on them. Mm-hmm. I think as I'd watched a lot of like Alex Gibney's human behavior experiments, right. those kinds of things. Okay. Right, 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 yeah. Um, which are great. Uh, but yeah, probably something along those lines. I don't know. That's mm. the first thing that came to my head. Good. I mean, sort of, so I'm, I'm a twin, so I have a twin brother. It's not quite triplet. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. And you recently Identical? Got, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so uh, well, uh, well, fraternal, but if you saw us together, we'd look pretty identical. Um, so he got married recently and it's all this great uh thing of like they think when he was getting married they thought that i was the was the groom so it's this weird thing like i was getting married alongside with him and now it's now become this sort of like joke of when i meet his wife my brother will joke with me and say like oh when you come in marie don't kiss my brother thinking that it's it's me and it's this weird your identity is constantly being put into into comparison question. yeah comparison also questioned well, when i go to his work they think that i'm my brother in fact i met my brother's uh boss and they he thought that i was i was him so i could have been the evil twin and really messed up his career <laughs> that's very trippy see like somebody yeah. trying to convince you mm. that you're not who you are and that you're your brother exactly yeah maybe you've forgotten there's actually a great documentary which um tell me who i am mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's also about, about that, Dead yeah. Ringers, David Cronenberg, I guess that's dealing with like oh, twins. I love David Cronenberg. Yeah. yeah. Um, I haven't seen Crimes of the Future, though. I've heard no, mixed reviews. I've heard, uh, yeah, I've heard it. I mean, I'm on board and I think sort of David Cronenberg, even if it's bad, at least it'll have. He would have tried to swing for the fences and done something that's infinitely more interesting than. I guess like watching something a bit more mainstream or not as even. or competently more well made, I would say. Um, and then I just want to sort of like um, touch on a little bit. So what's been your favorite film and TV show of 2022 so far? Um, well, like I said, I've actually only just started watching Stranger Things. Mm. Oh, so you're And that was a delight. Yeah, I, well, I've just finished the second. Yeah, oh, okay. so I'm, no I'm, I'm new. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> but I really, yeah, I really mm. enjoy it. And I really love the world building. And again, it's like, yeah, the synthesis of all these references um, and is self-referential in the second season as well. Mm. Um, you know, yeah. When, as it, Luke is um, telling Max about what has just happened. And mm. she's like, mm, it's a bit, you know, predictable, but some story holes, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah precisely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then in terms of film, I watched uh, Nina Thyberg's debut Pleasure. Okay. Right. Which took her seven years to make. And it's mm. all about um, this Swedish aspirational porn star who comes to the US. Okay. And it uses people who are actually in the in the porn industry right. as well and it's funny and delightful and sensitively done mm. and harrowing and it's all of those things um it's really really good so why did it take her seven years to actually make the film was it getting funding or is it just finding people who'd be willing to i think it was the know. research right yeah all yeah the research mm. and getting it right and feeling ready for it and mm. i'm sure i'm sure also pandemic maybe scuppered things mm. potentially it kind of reminds me a little bit is it sort of similar to sort of nymphomaniac in a sense that they're not superimposing actors but actors heads onto porn stars bodies that they literally are no i don't i i don't i have i've um only seen volume one of nymphomaniac but oh, it's nothing okay. like that <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very much nothing like that right right i see 
Um, and I guess that's an interesting thing, like in terms of like pornography, it's a lot more so like pervasive and it seems like a lot more... Um, a lot more acceptable in a way, I guess, in terms... It, I, it was, I guess when I say acceptable, it seems there's a streak of conservatorship that runs through a certain strands of the media and other mm. sites where people are quite happy to explore that and be very open. Um, well, I think it. the way that she did it, which was so interesting, was mm. that she said that when she made her short film, um, which spawned this film... Mm -hmm. She was actually an anti-porn activist oh, okay. and actively campaigned against it. Yeah. Um, and then as she progressed and did all this research over mm. the seven years, um, she came to be more empathetic with it and see um, it as a more nuanced industry. And mm. also one of the nice things about it is that the protagonist isn't pathologized. Mm. You know, she even makes a joke about how she's like, yeah, so... I was raped and then I became a porn star and she's like, actually, you know, I'm just joking. It's mm. like, she's mm. just who she is. You don't actually, she seems to have a loving relationship with her mother. You don't actually know really anything about her mm. life pre-arriving right. in America. Yeah, yeah. And it's just about her pursuit. It's just about the game mm. really. And how you, but you do see how um, soul destroying mm. that game is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, certainly not glamorizing no and I also think like in terms of the porn industry I think and it's a sort of hard thing to sort of uh, something I sort of wrestle with there are certain I guess like industries or things where people that can't function per se in like office jobs or like normal like they can't handle like a nine to five where are these people supposed to make money where are they supposed to find um, like community um, and as much as sort of like exploitative as it is and there, there's some very very steep pitfalls of that I guess like some people do find a community and do find solace and a place mm. of belonging, belonging mm. um, for a period of time i guess because there's people that have been i guess like porn stars have been very happy to have a very illustrious career they've been very smart they've mm. made their money and they've they've moved on there's people that's been destroyed that I mean there's people that become born again christians because i guess like mm. as we move through life our personality changes our perspective mm. changes our values sort of like change exactly. um so yeah it is, it is very uh, yeah it's a very difficult and as you say like nuanced um subject so i just want to move on and ask you a question i asked you at the, um, the end of our uh, last interview and i wonder if the answer is still going to be the same so um what's your dream project if money and time um, wasn't an issue did i say last time like um a grounded dark version of his dark materials you did the golden compass I've got, <laughs> oh my god i haven't I've got changed um, <laughs> interestingly That's you spoke funny. about multiverse stories and i know um that everything everywhere uh, all, at, all at, once. at once and i was like oh yeah that just like popped up so you're very prescient uh, about that um yeah that was a great film mm. absolutely wacko but great <laughs> yeah the daniels are fantastic like swiss army man i like i really enjoyed that movie so I didn't see that one, oh. but it really mm. reminded me of all their music videos which i really right, enjoyed yeah, yeah yeah so it's still the same so it's like golden compass and the other thing you mentioned um was a big sci-fi project which dealt with alienation belonging belonging and um outsiders did i say that you did say that yeah i said that yeah in 2019 and 2019 yeah 2019 <gasps> you said that yeah wow that's nuts <laughs> So there's not um, there, at the moment, there's nothing on your desktop where you're writing this 300 page um, sort of like sci-fi. No, but that's what I'm doing with Viral. Oh yeah, correct. Yes, 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 precisely. Yeah. I mean, I did think that, but I thought that might be um, it might the connection might be too too uh, sort of like uh, close. But yeah, it's interesting when you ask these sort of questions, you follow up in terms of where somebody's thought process was then to where they kind of like end up. That um. 
that's you know because I've completely forgotten. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have even thought I would have um, answered that. But that's that's really actually affirming to hear because mm. I feel like I I feel like my work is so disparate mm. sometimes. You know, I envy those um, directors that seem to just do one thing mm-hmm. over and over and over again. You know? <laughs> <laughs> because they're like honing yeah, their, exactly. their, yeah, their just, craft. That, you know, yeah. it's like like transcendental cinema is, mm. is the is the um, act of ritualizing mm. behavior and, yeah. and just like Ozu, you know, just yeah, yeah, of course. the yeah, same yeah, yeah. thing in a way over mm. and over again. Um, and is achieving transcendence through that. And I don't have that. I feel like I'm very varied. Right. <laughs> and so it's kind of nice to hear that I answered the same thing. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and the other thing you said is like, all my projects are dream projects because I ho- all hope they get made. It was another, was like your other. Oh, like, did I? Yeah. yeah. And here's like, here's me like mining for the, for the secret project eventually like uh, down the line to get that role like exclusive. Um, I guess like what's interesting, I guess briefly, we haven't really touched on it because you've spoken about those uh, virile and uh, this perfect day, but you have made a few couple of other movies in between that, I believe. Um, we've just got a few moments. Do you want to just sort of briefly mention those? Because you said your work has been quite disparate. So what are those mm. movies you made? What are they sort of like, focused on? Um, so Gnome and the Worm is a film starring Afi Okeja, who was in uh, one of the friends in Rocks. Um, but that film is about a girl who is best friends with the earthworm. Right, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. she lives in a, um, in a small holding, a secluded small holding with her parents. And her relationship with this worm is challenged when um, her mother announces that she's leaving Mm. and so the actual concept of a girl who is super alienated and um in love with an earthworm came from lily sariki um and then my task was to flesh it out write it into story and then direct it Mm -hmm. um but in a way it actually is still i think i was drawn to that initial idea in the first place because of the this concept of alienation and these prisons that mm. we build for ourselves I that see. we encase ourselves in and then and then how to you know break out of that mm-hmm. and the the earthworm is a metaphor and also quite a phallic one you know <laughs> <laughs> i suppose um yeah and then in in the the film prom night um that was just a little covid exercise basically it was just like right after lockdown and we have one day to build a set Mm -hmm. and then one day to film it and um i street cast uh diane gray who's working in our local sainsbury's Um, she'd also never been on screen before Mm -hmm. and that was exploring the um feeling that i had growing up of not being of wanting to be white because i was like okay Asian growing up in Australia mm. and with Western media and just feeling um, yeah that I wasn't wasn't good enough and right, right. trying to westernize myself okay I think it's just a, it was a, like a little experimental film played at MIF right nice okay so you, lastly um, where can people check out your work as a filmmaker find out about your up and coming film projects and follow you on social media um, they can follow me on Instagram at Lydia Ri Huang, which is L-Y-D-I-A-R-U-I-H-U-A-N-G. And my website is just www.lydiarie.com.
Perfect. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming on again and being uh, interviewed <laughs> by me. I really appreciate it. It's, it's been such pleasure. a lovely conversation. So. It's been so, yeah. so rewarding. Thank Brilliant. you so much. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Right.